0: Brooklyn, New York, I'm Adam Teeter.
1: From Connecticut, I'm Erica Ducey.
0: And in Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Jabal. And this is the Vine Pair Podcast.
2: Guys, what's going on? It's like, you know, it's basically summer's over, right?
0: Yeah. It's
1: done. It's fall. We have now crossed the Labor Day weekend mark and it is fall time.
2: Is that like, so do you do you guys subscribe to that? As, I mean, do you sort of has like summer ends after Labor Day, or are you kind of some of those people are like, um, actually, it's not until September twenty first, <laughs> and we still have school. a few more weeks. I mean,
0: that's no. what
1: I always think. Like summer's <laughs> over, right? Summer is done.
0: Yeah, I feel like I feel like for me that the mark of summer being over is when I look in my closet and try and figure out where the hell my sweaters are, and that definitely happened over the weekend. So, Wait, are you serious? Yeah, I mean, it's not like like I would say in Seattle right now, it, you know, it's getting cool ish. And when you go walk the dog at 10 at night, like I want long sleeves. So I'm just I'm just starting to prepare. I'm not like full on sweaters, you know, during the day yet. It's still pretty warm during the day. But I'm just I'm 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 taking stock. I'm not I'm not wow. out of the closet yet. But I'm 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 uh, locating my favorites.
2: I'm still shorts and t shirt all the way. Yeah. Like I'm I'm hoping this lasts through October.
0: Yeah, New York <laughs> is a little different uh, climate than Seattle.
2: True. Well, again, another superior Thing, but uh, anyways, yeah. So, how were your summers? If you were to take stock of them as like a as a, as a thing, all th- all things considered, obviously.
1: I mean, for me, uh, we were out in Connecticut for the entire summer. Um, uh, people will be listening to this on Tuesday, probably uh, in September, and we have will have just moved back to Jersey City. Um, so we were out in the country all summer long. And there was a lot of uh, evening bonfires and um, camping, like putting up a, a tent in the backyard here and doing a bunch of outdoor stuff. So I'd say my summer Uh, In in all of the years past, we mostly have stayed in the city with just a couple sort of country vacations, but this entire summer, it was out in nature, and that was actually super eye-opening. We were amazed to find out how much we loved being in the country and having kind of a a more of a laid-back pace of life.
0: That's awesome. What about you, Zach? Uh, This was definitely the least summery summer of my life. And, and, uh, you know... COVID is obviously a huge part of that. Um, Also, like my job for the last however many years has involved a lot of like handholding of tourists. And I didn't have to do any of that this year, which was kind of nice. But also, weirdly, I missed it occasionally, like, you know, a lot of telling people how to get to Pike Place Market or, you know, the Space Needle or whatever. And uh, I think the other thing that is that was true for me, and I don't think I realized this until um, it sort of began, was one thing that I did. I do love about summer that that I got to do in small, you know, ways, but not as big. You know, I really miss dining outside, drinking outside. And I understand that for lots of people, they decided that that was something they were comfortable with this year. Uh, It wasn't for me and my family. And so, you know, besides eating dinner on our deck occasionally, it was a lot of, like, looking out at a nice evening and being like, huh, it would have been nice, but uh, here we are in the house again. So uh, yeah, you know, I, all that being said, um, you know, I'm not going to complain because I have a lot better than most. So but it was definitely a lot of the things that I, I typically associate with summer in terms of activities and and even places to go and things like that didn't happen this year. So uh, we'll try again in 2021, I suppose. Crazy.
2: My summer was interesting. I mean, I thought it was weird. Weirdly, I think, like Erica, I did things I wouldn't normally have done. Um, like, I definitely feel like I had these experiences where usually my summer as, as was yours, Erica is like really city focused almost the entire summer, except for like those two to two and a half weeks where like Naomi and I go somewhere. And usually it's somewhere, you know, out of the country and that feels like our big vacation. Then maybe like we'll meet a family member or something at, at a beach for a weekend or something. But for the most part, like we're in the city doing city stuff. And this summer, I think because COVID felt so suffocating, um, you know we got out of the city almost every weekend with uh, with our, our quarantine buddy Lena who had a car and we would go to like a beach in, on Long Island or we'd go upstate or we'd you know we'd take these little adventures and kind of use the 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 metro area and the tri-state area as, as a place to kind of make discoveries and hang out and that was really cool and I think I actually wound up having kind of a, d- a decent summer, not not a summer that felt in the same way like summer, right um, but it still was summer, which was cool. I mean, for me, it always like, you know, centers on my birthday. Cause I'm, I'm big into birthdays, my birthday specifically. Um, <laughs> and you know, I, I, like, I have one of these, I'm never gonna forget this memory that, you know, I wanted to see people on my birthday and, uh, you know, basically I'd invited people. I knew who were in the city. Uh, anyone who wasn't in the city, I didn't invite. Cause I felt like it would be too much to ask them to come in. And it was still like early days in late June. Um, and, basically it was threatening rain all day and then poured rain, but you had to be outside. And I was like adamant that I was still going to hang out outside. Um, and I did it and some friends showed up and it was really like awesome that we stood in the rain drinking drinks and eating Popeye's fried chicken. Cause for some reason that's what I wanted. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and it was like a, a cool memory that I don't think, you know, I'll forget that, you know, I think I could have had a much more, a less remarkable birthday. You know what I mean? And so I think that was uh that was something about, this whole experience that that forced me to do something I normally wouldn't do I would have given up we would have gone inside whatever And I think same as what you're talking about Erica with being in the country for the entire summer and getting to have these really cool memories and making bonfires and camping out and all that stuff like those are going to be memories that people are going to have for a long time and hopefully have some positive stuff that comes out of all of this.
1: Totally. Uh, And I have a question for you guys, since we kind of tangentially just uh, touched on Zach, at least touched on uh, dining out and, um, and Adam, we've talked about this tipping. So tipping right now, at restaurants, at a sit down restaurant sitting outside, I have a bone to pick. I saw a Twitter thread earlier today that I was like, Are you kidding me? That uh, someone asked, you know, um, how much are you guys tipping at restaurants right now? And People were saying 20%. And I weighed in and I was like, are you fucking kidding me? 40% at least. Like these people are putting their lives on the line to serve you. They these restaurants are at half capacity. I was blown away that people are still tipping 20% at restaurants. Have you seen that?
2: I mean, so first of all, I can't believe people told you 20% because I've seen 10 and 15. Really? And most servers I've talked to, yeah. And most servers I've talked to have said that that's what they're seeing. I tip forty to fifty, like you. Um, it's amazing. Like we, you know, we don't. That's also we don't go out as much. But um, but you know, Naomi and I really have decided that that's something that is important to us, um, and we have to explain it to anyone we go out to eat with. So like when we went out with her parents, for example, I mean, we we said to them we're like, look, this is what we do, and we wanted to treat them anyways. We're like, we don't want to hear it. Like we're gonna we're tipping this, and it is what it is, and we've explained it to other people as well, like. This is this is how we tip and if you don't want to come with us especially if it's friends where you don't list the bill and we say like it's cool like we don't have to eat out but if you want to eat out like this is how we tip.
1: Absolutely. I yeah.
2: And that's been very important to us but yeah, I mean I don't think a lot of people are doing it. If you read a lot of the stories coming out of the restaurant industry, a lot of servers are saying they're they're getting stiff they're getting very low tips there's a lot of the things we've worried about which is people not understanding that that the restaurants are less staffed so they're complaining a lot about the length of time it's taking for them to be served or that you know they don't have the one-on-one treatment they're used to i mean people are being just as hard on restaurant people at restaurants as they always have been because let's be let's be real a lot of consumers are fucking assholes
1: yeah. It's shocking to me that they that people are not tipping more. I mean, the simple math of the situation of a restaurant being at 50% capacity, you know, on a good day if they have a big outdoor space, like that is it, just do the math of it. How are people how are servers supposed to survive? It's it just makes no yeah. sense to me.
0: Well, Erica, the as someone who spent a long time doing exactly that, And Adam's right, the vast majority of guests are at best, uh, you know, oblivious to that fact, if not, you know, actively hostile to the idea that, that they are, you know, entitled to anything less than, you know, the utmost in terms of treatment. I mean, I've seen people yell at visibly very pregnant servers for not serving them fast enough. So I've seen just about everything in the restaurant industry. And none of this surprises me. I mean, I'll say something that I guess is relatively controversial, and, and I apologize if I offend anyone. But I think choosing to go out and eat right now is a pretty inherently selfish act. It doesn't mean that it's not something that should occasionally be done. And, and obviously, there's a huge issue in this country of what exactly are restaurant uh, you know, workers, restaurant owners, et cetera, to do if people don't dine out. But but really, you are you are saying, you know, you're you not just taking your own health into uh, into your own hands, you're taking everyone else in the restaurant, the server, et cetera. You, you know, you're taking a risk with their health. And the absolute least you could do in that is is compensate them more wholly than than you would normally. But I think, you know, for a lot of people, you know, Adam, you told the story on the last episode of of someone coming up and screaming at a host because they had to wear yeah. a mask. I mean, again, that kind of behavior, maybe that's an extreme for sure. But that general sentiment, I mean, we have this issue in this country where where people in the service sector of all sorts are treated like, frankly, servants. And that isn't the right way to approach, you know, that situation. And it's laid particularly bare in this situation where, you know, people in the, working in restaurants, people serving and, and cooking, et cetera, are are not just working hard but they're as as Erica said taking real risks to do this and th- in many cases they don't have a choice because you know our government is no longer providing additional unemployment insurance you know many places don't have eviction moratoriums anymore you know a lot of people's options are take their life and their families lives into their own hands or be homeless and that's an extremely fucked up situation and one that we as a society are not dealing with and and frankly you know Erica Tipping forty percent doesn't do a whole lot. It's better than tipping twenty percent or ten percent, but but really the issue we have in this country in terms of service is that we're making a lot of people take really unnecessary risks with their health because we can't get our shit together enough to make to allow people to remain safe. And and you know, I, it's really really disgusting. Um. So yeah, if you're gonna go yeah. out and eat, you're gonna go out and drink fucking tip and if you can't yeah. afford to do that or don't want to then do not go out and it's always the rule should always be the rule but it is 10 times the case now yeah
1: yeah
2: i okay. agree so mm-hmm. i had one other thing i want to share with you both um before we jump into today's topic which i thought was interesting because we talked a bunch about this and this article hit this week uh and i thought it was pretty uh interesting data so you know we talked a lot about whether or not cities are dying and whether restaurants are going to close and all this stuff and um definitely if you read a majority of the news they're gonna they will tell you uh, lots of anecdotal stories about the fact that certain moving companies are over uh you know have overcapacity and I mean they're sorry oversubscribed and uh you know everyone's moving out and they can't take on any more clients to move them as far away from New York City or San Francisco or uh, Seattle or whatever as possible right that everyone's going to the suburbs um and that's kind of been the narrative for the whole summer that I think is has, has gotten a lot of people kept a lot of people. Very nervous, right? But in actuality, that's not the case. And so, Curbed actually published this really amazing article this week where they actually dug into the data, and through an exhaustive study using Zillow and other um, you know metrics of of flight, they basically found that actually, yes, suburbs suburb sales are up, but that's only because the time when suburb sales are at their highest in the uh, in the United States is during the months of COVID when we were locked down. So basically that sale time just transferred to now when people felt comfortable in terms of like actually buying homes. And then in addition to that, we actually don't see these suburban homes selling more quickly than urban homes. In actuality, urban homes are still selling faster than suburban homes. And that actually urban homes still have a slight edge in urban zip codes of their valuations and are still accelerating faster than suburban home valuations. And on top of this, We also are not seeing um, anything in terms of a suburban housing market booming because of an outbound migration. Instead, what we're seeing is a bunch of people leaving the suburbs that would have all for the suburbs that would have always left for the suburbs. So basically, it's just it accelerated that potentially just a little bit, but it's people who are mostly like two or three family, two or three kids in the family, right? It just, it makes more sense to live in the suburbs at this point and go to public schools and potentially be in an urban environment in which you may not feel as comfortable sending your kids to public schools, although you should. Listen to Nice White Parents, another great podcast. Um, But, you know, the only place where actually we are seeing the exceptions are San Francisco, Manhattan. Those are actually the only two places where there is, Uh, you know, a pronounced amount of flight. And that's basically because those two areas of the country more than anything else have massively exploding rents, right? Like the bubble of rents is just so high that people are using this excuse to leave, but it's not happening in Brooklyn. It's not happening in Oakland. It's not happening in Queens. So I think this idea that like the cities are dying, isn't actually true. And I hope should be a little bit of a positive note for all of us to feel like, okay, Cool. You know, if these things aren't actually happening the way that the the press is really reporting them, then maybe we can believe that eventually restaurants and bars will come back. And then, Zach, as you're saying, we don't have to be as desperate about something like we have to go out now or we have to open now because, you know, the data shows that people aren't leaving. So, you know, they'll come back when when they feel safe to do so.
1: I mean, I hope that is the case because I feel like every article I see is just like, you know, massive. You know this house in Westchester had twenty nine offers and sold for five hundred times asking price. you know it's just like outrageous, yeah, sort of statistics you're like, jesus like is really is is are the cities emptying out um I mean that is definitely the narrative that I have seen, and I really, really hope that that is not the case,
2: yeah, I mean. I think like like this article says, it's accelerated for the people who it already would. And you can think about it, right? If you were already thinking about moving to Westchester and now you're moving, it also can make you feel crazy. It's like this is the only house we're going to get. It's the only house we're going to get. So you also drive the price up. I'm sure there's also houses still in the Westchester market that aren't selling or haven't had their their price escalate in the same way because maybe they're not in the exact school district you had decided you had wanted to move into or they aren't the exact size you've decided you wanted to to have, right? Like that. the same thing was happening in Brooklyn What five years ago, where there were certain neighborhoods in Brooklyn where, like the the housing price would just get inflated so fast because everyone decided they had to live in Park Slope or Carroll Gardens or you know uh, Borough Hill, but then there were other neighborhoods in Brooklyn that weren't having that happen at all, where the the, you know the house was still sitting on the market like in Bed-Stuy, and then Bed-Stuy got discovered. You know, so I wonder if this is also selective reporting. You know, like we're guilty of, we're all guilty of that, right? We report on what we know, and that's kind of what. The article is saying is like a lot of the people who are writing these stories are people who media is based in manhattan you know you live there you may live then also in the suburbs and this is these are kind of the stories you're writing but if you look at the data the data doesn't support it in the same way that all these different anecdotal stories do so i i hope that's the case right i hope that this this article is correct and that there's a silver lining and that it's not you know everything else we're reading
0: yeah, I just want to add one note to someone who is actually kind of in the process of looking for a house. Uh, one piece to this that I think is important to understand is we're still at what could very well be a, a a very significant and meaningful transformation in a lot of workplaces. You know, no one has a lot of certainty right now what uh, life will look like when you know people presumably return to an in-person work uh, space whether that's tech or like for my wife, you know, sort of another white collar job or things like that. And, you know, we're we're honestly having this conversation all the time about, you know, we have our priorities about where we'd like to live from a sort of cultural aesthetic standpoint and proximity to restaurants and bars and things like that. But there's also the very real, real conversation that we're having to have is like, well, but how do we balance that against the possibility that my wife is going to be working from home, you know, entirely or, or primarily for who knows years we I mean we, right. honestly, we don't know, and I do think that that some of what you're seeing right now is a lot of people just basically waiting and seeing and if and if you know uh if the American you know sort of uh, you know information economy is largely shifted to an at home workplace, I think that's really gonna gonna maybe drive more um more movement and frankly is going to fundamentally change the restaurant industry, because and we don't have time for all of this right now. But fundamentally, like, a lot of restaurants are built around, you know, concepts and 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 whole dis- neighborhoods and things like that are built around a concentration of people during the day and in the evening. And if you lose that, you you have to come up with a different concept, you have to come up with a different idea of where you situate your restaurants, how you bring people in how you serve them. And I don't necessarily think that's bad. It might be bad for specific restaurants, specific operators, specific parts of cities and things like that. But I think there will always be a desire for, you know, people to get food and drink in places that are not their home. But you might have to think about locating yourself differently to be able to meet those evolving needs. And, and that's just one another, it's another accelerating trend that I think we are already seeing in the in the industry where these cities were so difficult for people to to you know open a restaurant in for for employees to work you know to live in and work at and you know all of that is changing and and like many other things in society, COVID is just an accelerant. It's not the the you know the driver of the trend. Well.
2: With at that note, let's get into actually today's topic. Twenty minutes, twenty <laughs> minutes later, which is
0: I need a drink. Good. Uh,
2: well, I mean, I'm hoping you're pouring yourself a bourbon because that's what we're talking about today. Which is, uh, which is, this is the kickoff to um, Bourbon Heritage Month, and at Vine Pair, we are, uh, you know, focusing on bourbon and the the history, the content, et cetera, of bourbon this entire month. Erica, you want to tell everyone a little bit about
1: it? Yeah, definitely. So, you know, at, at Vine Pair, I think we all universally love bourbon. Um, so – a lot of us in the office are fans of bourbon. We drank it all year long, um, but uh, fall is definitely bourbon's uh, biggest season. So both from a Nielsen data perspective um, and from our own VinePair audience insights data, you really see a climb in September throughout the entire fall peaking in the holiday season. And uh, that's you know, from a sales point of view, from a audience interest point of view, meaning like the searches and the uh, interactions with articles and so forth. So um, that is why one of the reasons we decided to focus on September for uh, a big American um uh, bourbon celebration, and then it also happens to be National Bourbon Heritage Month. So, <laughs> so the timing is perfect. Um, so we uh, this month will be doing a lot of bourbon coverage. Um, I think we, you know, we started out the month with kind of a category report looking at all of the things that are happening in uh, the entire um, sort of realm of bourbon. If you look at the whiskey category and whiskey sales, uh, in 2019, the overall whiskey category was 5.7 billion, and then within that category, that's one. It was 1.6 billion was bourbon only for off-premise sales. So, um, so the numbers are pretty big for bourbon, and it has been a booming category for several years. Um, the compound uh, annual growth rate for the category, according to the IWSR, has been about 7% by volume. Uh, for each of the last five years and it's just growing and growing. So um, you know we we love bourbon. We are planning a ton of stories uh, the week that you'll be listening to this we have one man's strange quest to make a 50 state whiskey blend M- many of that many of those were bourbons in there. Um, and then we have bourbon limited releases. we have a look at the military's own. Bourbon. So I don't know if you guys knew this, but the military actually makes its own, uh, actually sells its own bourbon that you can only get on base exchanges, and it's called Military Special. It's in a huge $9 plastic. Leader bottle, and some people love it, some people hate it. But you may not know that it's made at Sazerac's Barton Distillery, which is really fascinating. Um, we'll have tons of product recommendations. We'll have all sorts of new and classic bourbon recipes. We'll look at the twenty-four defining moments in two hundred years of bourbon history. It is all bourbon all the time.
0: Wow, I feel <laughs> I feel like I just had a double shot. That was that was something, Erica. <laughs>
1: <laughs> we 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 really went deep on bourbon so i mean yeah. i feel like any anything that you are interested in learning about bourbon uh go to VinePair pair this month because it's it's gonna be a big to do
2: it is <laughs> <laughs>
0: I was just gonna ask, I, I feel like, you know, there there's almost as Erica very clearly demonstrated, there's so much to talk about in the topic of bourbon that I I don't even really know where I feel like I would want to start. Other than I just wanna ask, you know, we ask this a lot when we talk spirits. Erica, Adam, what are your favorite bourbon cocktails?
2: Ooh, see, I was just gonna get into how you guys like bourbon at all, but you went there immediately. Well, fine. We can start
0: with how we want it served. That's fine.
2: <laughs> well, no, we can go into cocktails first. I mean, this is gonna be really blasphemous. But I actually am pretty much a straight bourbon drinker.
1: Oh, I feel I that way about Cognac. I do not do
2: cocktails with bourbon that often. I that's really so don't. Funny. I
0: Except, of course, the Boulevardier.
1: Well, I, yes, that's my favorite. Yeah. <laughs> so
2: that would be the one if I had one. But yeah, for the most part, it's it's straight. I drink it straight. And I usually yeah. drink it either with a little bit of water or like with one cube of ice um, except if it's like a I don't know like buffalo trace I like with like a lot of ice and I kind of like to like chew on the ice and it gets kind of watered down and it's delicious um, I don't know why I mean but that's just always been my kind of thing is with bourbon I don't know, man I'm from the south we drink our bourbon straight or like <laughs> if you're real if you're if you haven't learned how to do that yet then you drink, you drink Jim or Jack. I mean, because Jack is a bourbon technically, even though it's filtered uh, with Coke. But most of us drink our bourbon straight.
1: Yeah, for me, I'd say if I'm going to go straight, I'm, I love Booker's. Uh, so, do you guys know Booker's? You, oh, I love I'm Booker's. Sure got, yeah, yeah. So all I mean, right, we're
0: already given like specific recommendations. <laughs> Holy shit! Okay. God damn. I mean,
1: I I do. I, I can go. I can go into the cocktails too. But I mean, for a straight bourbon, the one I always have on my shelf at home is Booker's. Like, occasionally I'll have High West or um, maybe I've had Russell's Reserve, Maker's Mark. You know, everyone, all of them have their own sort of unique uh, appeal to them. So if I'm looking for something really smooth, then it's a Maker's. If I'm looking for something spicier, maybe I'll go like Basil Hayden or something that has a higher rye mash bill. So, you know, there's just like so much product variation in the category. And that's before you even get to cask finishing. So I think it's just it's such a hugely diverse category. And I I did see some research, I can't remember exactly who it was from, but they were saying like the the um, the skew explosion, the product explosion in the bourbon category over the past couple of years has been unprecedented. There's just so many bourbons coming onto the market.
0: Oh yeah, totally. Well it
1: makes sense. It makes sense because
0: it's become such a popular category that, you know, everyone wants the bourbon you know, they want to they want to put bourbon on the label, but then offer you a flavor profile that might appeal more to you, whether you're, you know, previously had been, a, you know, a single malt whiskey drinker or a rye drinker or a tequila drinker or whatever. Like they're trying to find flavor profiles that still fit under the sort of legal definition of bourbon, but that are more expansive. And that makes total sense. It's how you sell a lot more product than just keeping making the same thing. But Erica, you did not tell me your favorite cocktail.
1: Oh, well, she, did. The
0: Boulevardier, she did for sure. Oh, okay. But I do
1: know the history. You want to tell so, yes. all the listeners so, what
0: the Boulevardier is?
1: Absolutely. Um, so the Boulevardier, so it was actually named for the publisher of a uh, magazine called Boulevardier, and it was a magazine for expats who were living in Paris in the 1920s. And the publisher's name was Erskine Gwyn. Um, and it's uh it's a very simple cocktail, it's essentially a negotiation. Grony variation, so you just replace the gin with bourbon, and and I go a little higher on the bourbon. So um, for for a Boulevardier, instead of doing equal parts of Campari, sweet vermouth, and then the the spirit for a bowl for the Boulevardier, I would increase the parts uh, for bourbon. So like if it was one ounce of sweet vermouth one ounce of Campari, then I'd do probably an ounce and a quarter, maybe a little bit more of bourbon. And some people you know, really uh, think that that's a little sweet. They like a Boulevardier made with rye, but I, I love- <clears throat> That would
2: be me. Yeah, but that's I not how it's supposed to be made, Zach.
1: <laughs> a bourbon Boulevardier. So that's, that's the one for me.
2: Yeah, Exactly, because Erica is a cultured individual, and (laughs) she understands how the cocktail is supposed to be drunk, unlike Zach, who tried to correct me about a year and a half ago on this podcast, or two years maybe, by saying that I didn't know how to drink Boulevard Eights because they were made with rye, and then guess what? We pulled the history, and who was correct?
0: I wasn't. It wasn't an argument about the history. It was an argument about which was better, and I stand by (laughs) my scouts. (laughs) What about you? So I think for me, it's funny, you know, we're, we're going to, I'll say my, I think my favorite bourbon cocktail and like the cocktail where, and and by this, I mean the cocktail where I would only ever want bourbon in it and never would want another spirit, which to me is kind of an important thing here. I honestly love mint juleps. Like we were having a weird, you know, we had a weird September Kentucky Derby. I have, I've always loved the julep. I've always kind of loved the You know, I love mint. I think I like the flavor it brings. I like, I like occasionally like a sweeter cocktail like you. I, Adam, I like the sort of, you know, enjoying the sort of slushy crushed ice kind of thing at the end. And uh, and it's just it, it was one of the it was one of the first drinks as a bartender that I really obsessed over getting my own kind of recipe down and and technique down because while well, I think it can be taken as a very simple you know drink and and obviously if you if you go to if you were in previous years to go to a crowded bar on on the Derby day and try and get them in julep you're probably getting you know something that was pre mixed you know a few days ago but making one from scratch to you know kind of um, in the moment. There actually is a surprising amount of technique that goes into it, and, and I always kind of have gravitated to those cor- kinds of drinks as both a bartender and as a drinker. But when it comes to enjoying bourbon otherwise outside of cocktails, uh, I am also mostly just a sort of bourbon neat kind of person. Um, every now and then a big ice cube, but honestly, I drink a lot of it in the evenings but just as is, You know, not so much in the summer, but as we move into fall as I find out where my sweaters are. Uh, I will be drinking more and more of it, and my favorite is is willet that's my uh that's my favorite distillery uh I named my dog willet um not not coincidentally and uh I have a big one point seven five liter bottle of it on my shelf all the time so
2: didn't you you had like a bourbon party right
0: uh my my uh my wife and i our baby showers theme was whiskey so that's what uh, i thought yeah uh, <laughs> it wasn't it wasn't exclusively bourbon but yes, there was a lot of bourbon at said party uh it was fun and we have we have a uh a potentially a comically large bourbon collection at home so you know if you're ever in Seattle you know where to find bourbon
2: I like bourbon a lot man I just think and again I think I like so first of all you know I had a lot of issues with growing up in the south I didn't love a lot of it the politics you know the the issues that people had with uh people who were different than them all that kind of stuff but when I moved up north I had sort of a nostalgia for some of the the cuisine and things like that. And I definitely sort of, I guess really found more of an affinity than I'd had in the past for bourbon. Um, and yeah, I really, I really think it's become my, my go-to whiskey, which is interesting because my earliest phase of drinking whiskey was scotch. Cause I just thought that that was what you were supposed to drink. If you were cultured, right. You were supposed to like be really into single malts and things like that. And I definitely feel like I've gotten more and more into bourbon. And I'm wondering like, if, why you both think we as a, a population have become so obsessed with it, right? Because it really, it's it's growing faster than any other category of whiskey. It's, you know, the dominant spirit certain months of the year. You now have other categories of whiskey kind of trying to copy the flavor profile, right? You have single malts that are finishing their single malts now in bourbon barrels and trying to say these are, you know, American bourbon finished scotches. Uh, you know, Irish whiskey is playing with it as well. What What do you think the, you know... driving forces behind it being so freaking popular
1: i i think it's because it's a sweeter spirit it's one of the sweetest brown spirits and that that to me makes a big difference well It's also it's also the original American spirit, right? It's like it's got the congressional resolution of 1964 that calls it the distinctive spirit of the United States. Um, So I think that there's some part of it that people, you know, maybe go at bourbon because, uh, you know, it, it feels like kind of a maybe a patriotic thing or like something like that. But I think when you get down to flavor profiles and what drives purchasing decisions. um, It's it's a very accessible brown spirit and you really can't go wrong. I mean, even at the bottom shelf, like old granddad, uh, which is less than $30 a bottle anywhere across the country, um, that is a very solid bourbon. And that you can go from, you know, from that level of in the high 20s all the way up to several hundred dollars. And no matter what, you're going to get a good product. The quality is just there and the versatility is, has is, you know, is, is there. It goes in so many different types of cocktails and it is so good to drink by itself. And there's just such a huge variety of products at this point.
0: I think that's all true. I think one of the things that instigated it, though, was that for for a while, you know, and I, I say this as someone, again, who is a bartender and, and around the bar community, it really felt kind of, you know, deeply unappreciated in this country. I think there were a lot of people who gravitated towards it for sort of the same reasons that that Adam explained, that if you were drinking whiskey, if, if people drank whiskey 20, 15, 20 years ago, they were probably scotch drinkers. Um, and And bourbon was like, you know it wasn't seen as a serious spirit it, it you know spirits in general were seen as kind of not something that people took seriously you know cocktails were were just having a renaissance uh, in you know the early 2000s and a lot of what came out of that was Giving people permission to do something which they probably wanted to, had wanted to do all along because, as Erica said, bourbon is delicious, it like is. much more so than any other than many than any other whiskey for sure, and, and most other spirits. It delivers a lot of pleasure. You know, it, it delivers it can deliver a lot of interesting flavor and complexity, and and you know, sort of things that aren't always purely pleasurable. But but at its base, it is pleasure, and it's about the sweetness, it's about the smoothness, it's about you know some of the specific flavors. You know, the really intense kind of vanilla caramel tones that are more, you know, because it's all new oak barrels, it's going to give you more of that than most any other spirit. And and people just want permission to drink something they find pleasurable. And whether it was through a rise of, of craft cocktails, whether it was through some sort of on-screen, in-culture, uh, you know, figures. I think, you know, Mad Men probably had a lot to do with mm-hmm. it, too. It's been talked about a lot, um, even though I fucking hated that show, whatever. Not the point. <laughs> <laughs> of course you did. And uh, I, think that, I think that there was just a lot of, a lot of people were were either introduced to it or were sort of encouraged to take it seriously for the first time and what came along with that was at the time a huge backlog of of you know really extensively aged whiskey of bourbon that people could purchase for you know relatively reasonable prices, which is obviously no longer the case and you had this 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 then kind of concurrent explosion in uh, craft distilling not just in Kentucky but around the country, and you know one of the things I'm curious in your guys' opinions on, and and we can get into it now or or another time. You know, one issue that I would say about bourbon is I still think once you get outside of traditional kind of bourbon country, quality is really it's shit. It's what? shit. not all shit.
1: Oh my god! Of it is. No, 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 no. A
2: lot of it is. No A lot way. of it is.
1: I I disagree with that.
2: Mm, mm. <laughs> I'm more on
0: Adam's side than on Erica's side <laughs> here. I will say that one one fundamental issue that is that challenges a lot of distilleries that are newer is just, you know, craft distilling in this country is basically a decade old, maybe. Yep. Um, you know, it, it was the very end of, of the 2000s when the laws were changed to allow for craft distilleries to open and operate in many states. And the reality is, that's absolutely the bare minimum of time it takes to make good bourbon, like 10 years. You know, it needs a lot of time in barrel to reach a a really good level of sort of smoothness and um, flavor extraction. And the honest truth is like, Unless you were, you know, hugely you're willing to invest in your bourbon production right from the get go, which very few people were positioned to do. The honest truth is, most people who are putting bourbon on the market are still shortcutting it. They're either aging it for less time, they're using smaller barrels um, to get more of that flavor quickly. And and it's not to say that no one can get it right. It also takes trial and error to get your mash bill and and your processes dialed in. And the reality is, like, I think there's a lot of potential in the category outside of, you know, there's kind of the traditional, um, you know, mostly Kentucky, and maybe Tennessee um, distilleries, but but it's definitely not where it could be, and it it's still unfortunately the thing where I get a lot of, you know, again Pacific Northwest type uh, distilleries that you know where I try them, and I'm just like. Eh. I don't see the point yet. You know, maybe other other spirits you're doing great work with, but for most of the distilleries outside of that area without the heritage and the history, they just don't have it figured out yet. It doesn't to say they won't figure it out, but but Erica, it sounds like you have some some examples that yeah. you're doing good. I would love yeah. to know what I should be trying. Um
1: uh, what's the one that Nicole Austin was at? Uh remind me the name. Um she's now uh, now
2: like, she's a now she's a dickle.
1: Yeah, now she's a dickle, but she was at the New York one. The one that... No, has but a- you're gonna
2: say, and I'm gonna say Absolutely not.
1: No, I think that they have – they had to start out so – Kings
2: Kings County? County. Okay, but here's the thing.
1: Here's the thing. (laughs) Is that at the beginning, I think they did not really have it together. I was there years and years ago when they were doing the small barrels. But now, over time, just like any other category – You learn and you refine your technique and the product gets better. Now, I mean, High West, I mean, a lot of these distilleries have now been around for some amount of time and their product has gotten so much better.
2: Yeah, but don't you think that, okay, so Kings County, I went very early on as well when they had the small barrels and it was so expensive. I think that's the, maybe that's the issue that that Zach and I both have zach i don't mean to to make conclusions on your behalf No, i think but you're
0: probably right <laughs> it's like my issue with
2: it is like because it's craft and so therefore there's a lot of money that went into it right it's very the output is very expensive and these whiskeys at this point in time are not worth the money and i think that's my issue i think that even when i'd had king i mean and you and you're there's a pressure to do it right so people are putting it out you know, two years after it's been in bear, like as fast as they can to try to recoup cost, which makes sense because there's a lot of people who went into the the game raising money who didn't do it the way that, you know, like people who go into to, to wineries do it's like they're they're multimillionaires that then go in to lose some of their money. <laughs> like whatever. A lot of people here went into whiskey thinking we can go and make money, build brands. Everyone's trying to buy as many new brands as possible right now. Like let's go in and do this. And I feel like a lot of these whiskeys that came out were just extremely overpriced for what they were. And that had really put a sour taste in my mouth where I was like, Oh, I can't, I can't do this when like Elijah Craig is $25 and delicious. And yeah. that becomes very hard to stomach. And I think you're right that there are, that a lot of these places have gotten better. Admittedly, I have not had Kings County in at least a half decade because I'm uh, and I do, I'm not trying to, to badmouth Kings County, by the way. I'm sure there's a lot of people who, li- who love Kings County. I just haven't had it in a while. Um, but because it was so expensive, and it was like a 375, and it was like $45 for a 375 milliliter. And it just felt like a lot to stomach. I felt the same way about Hudson Baby Bourbon, which I think now is owned right. by Beam, right? Um, someone bought them but it was the same thing. It was like three seventy five. It was kind of like a cool kid thing to drink them. Like you were, you were, it was like the same person that would buy the most local of local craft beers would buy baby bourbon, but everyone knew it was a ripoff. And like everyone knew that it wasn't as good as drinking like Weller, which at the time when in New York, when Weller was affordable, was like $8 a, a, a dram. You know, now it's like ridiculous because it's connected to Pappy. Um, but I think that's my biggest issue is like, as, as Zach said, like it takes such time, but there's not that same kind of patience with craft whiskey because you need to make that money back that a lot of it just is not worth the price of what it needs to be charged for, if that makes sense.
1: Yeah. I would I would say if you're new to, to bourbon, go and try all the classics and that is your benchmark. But then once you've tried all the classics... I have found it particularly fun to branch out and try a bourbon from all around the country and whiskey from all around the country for that matter. Um, I mean, I, I know there's, uh, one that I enjoyed, uh, what is it? It's, um, um, Breckenridge distillery. They have a port cask finished, uh, bourbon that is lovely, incredible, um, like very sort of maple-y and delicious. I mean, there's so many, um, bourbons out there that you can try that you'll, you, you would, you can't, you just almost can't go wrong. I mean, I guess you can go a little bit wrong on price and on some of them are very young, but as long as, and some people are also just buying their bourbon and bottling it. Right. But you know, at, at the, at the end of the day, I find, you know, trying out the whole range of products out there to be really exciting.
2: Yeah. But real talk, both of your favorite (laughs) bourbons are still The classic producers.
1: That is true. Yeah.
0: (laughs) And I don't, and I just don't honestly see that changing. I mean, I'd love to be proven wrong, you know, distilleries outside of Kentucky. Let me know. I'll give you a shot, but I'm just, I'm, I I think it's, it's still, it's still a category where where for a variety of reasons, not the least of which is just the established tradition and the infrastructure. I don't, whereas with almost any other category of spirit, even other whiskeys, I might be inclined Mm -hmm. to pick a, a spirit from all kinds of places I'm going back to I'm going back to Bourbon County, man. That's just where I'm at.
2: Yeah. I I feel like look, email us podcast at Vinepair.com. You know, I'm happy to send you the addresses of since we're all still quarantining and not in the office, I'm happy to send you the addresses of Zach, myself, and Erica. If you got a bourbon you think we should try, more than happy to get to we're more than happy to give it a shot. But I think it's really hard. I mean, that's and I think that's what what has helped drive the bourbon category so much is that connection to, oh my gosh, there was this these people who've been making this stuff forever and there's these super old barrels and they're mixing these liquids in. And I mean, think about it. I think that is what really has, has made a lot of people fall in love with bourbon is going back to the history of it being America's spirit. And the fact that there are some there were there were some really affordable old bottles right that was like the thing that helped drive it in the beginning was there was these whiskey people who kind of re, who found bourbon who were like wow so i can get a super old bourbon for a lot cheaper than a super old scotch and they started collecting it now that's not the case right <laughs> now you can now you cannot get a super old bourbon for cheaper than super old scotch now like the next big the next big place i'm i'm telling you is if you want super old whiskey is irish um, cause that's still way undervalued, but that's another podcast. But like, if you're looking for old, which a lot of the bourbon hunters are like, that's, that is why they're attracted to you. That's why now they're the same people are being attracted to cognac and Armagnac. Um, but like, I think that's part of the allure of what it had. And like this idea, like you can be drinking this bourbon that like in it has liquids that are 50, 75 years old. That's just so romantic. You know, it's the same reason a lot of people fall in love with collecting wine and drinking old bottles and things like that. And so I don't know. That just for me is what makes bourbon so cool and special, even though I've never had Pappy.
0: Still? Oh, my God. I haven't. Uh, well, one day, Adam. One I mean, day, have you? I mean,
2: did you have both of you had it?
1: Uh, I, I don't even think that. I'm trying to think. I don't even think I have had it.
2: Yeah, I've never had it. I mean, Zach, is it really Is it as amazing as everyone says it is?
1: Uh, I would say
0: it's like anything in that category. It's, it's real good, but it's nowhere near worth the price. Like, I think you can have 97% of the experience for, you know, a a 10th of the price. And so I would never pay for it at the prices it is now. But like you were talking about with Weller, even even with Pappy, which had more of a rep, you know, it was 20 bucks a shot when I was getting into bartending, you know, I would spend that occasionally. It was fun, you know, it was a splurge. Now it's, you know, whatever, 10 times that. So I wouldn't, but Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's real good, but, but like anything too, it's, you know, some of it, as you said, the romance of, of feeling like you've discovered something is lost when it's the thing that everyone is clamoring after.
2: Well, that's, and that's what I'm really nervous about is like, so I guess recently, uh, Colonel E.H. Taylor, which also comes out of the Buffalo Trace Distillery, just won a ton of awards and it's sort of connected to Pappy and I love E.H. Taylor and it used to be like $12 a shot. I'm getting really nervous. It's going to explode. And you're not you're not be able to afford it anymore, Buy and that's that's sad. That's really sad because like, do you guys know what the going price for Pappy twenty three year old is right now for a bottle? Yeah, uh, go ahead. Eighteen thousand dollars.
1: That's outrageous. Like, I mean, it's just on. ridiculous. It's yeah. just yeah.
2: ridiculous. And like, look, I get that there's some still that are you know on the that's I mean that's on the secondary market, right? So on the primary market, I think they still do sell it. I think it's like a thousand or something, but that's, I mean, that's just an insane amount of money that people are willing to pay for this bottle of bourbon.
1: Yeah. Um,
2: So, which is another reason I've never had it before.
1: Yeah. (laughs) You missed your chance.
2: Exactly. I missed my chance. Now I have to find other things.
0: Not until the vine pair IPO. (laughs) Exactly. But
2: there's still a lot of really good stuff out there. I think that's what makes it so that's also makes bourbon so fun is like, you know, we're just saying, I think there's like Heaven Hill Distillery is super underrated. I think they do a lot of amazing bourbons. Um, You know, I think a lot of stuff Brown Forman makes is really great. Like there's a lot of really good distilleries. Again, we're talking Kentucky um, Mm -hmm. that, that have these undiscovered bourbons still that are still very affordable and delicious without feeling like, well, you have to have Pappy or you have to have Weller, or you have to have, gosh, what are the other big ones now? There's, there's so many that like, are just, you know, everyone wants to collect. I I don't think it has to just be those that you, that you yearn for in order for you to really enjoy this delicious liquid.
1: Right. There's so much out there. I mean, it's, it's just so, it's such a huge category.
2: It is. Well guys, this has been one of our longest podcasts ever. So if you stuck through the whole time, we really appreciate it.
0: Um, pour yourself a drink at this point
2: <laughs> pour, pour yourself a bourbon let us know what you think about bourbon we hope you enjoy the content for the rest of the month uh we'll be back at you next week as always send us your thoughts feelings etc to podcast at vinepair.com leave us a rating or review on itunes spotify wherever else you get podcast it helps other people discover the show and erica and zach i will see you next week see you then sounds great thanks so much for listening to the vinepair podcast if you enjoy listening to us every week, please leave us a review or rating on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever it is that you get your podcasts. It really helps everyone else discover the show. Now for the credits. VinePair is produced and hosted by Zach Jabal, Erica Ducey, and me, Adam Teeter. Our engineer is Nick Patrie and Keith Beavers. I'd also like to give a special shout out to my VinePair co-founder, Josh Mallon, and the rest of the VinePair team for their support. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you again right here next week.